You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, Dr. Rocky. Hey, Kiefer. And uh, in studio today, we also have Alex Moore. Always happy to join. Which means that this is a research review podcast. Although uh, we already agreed that this is probably going to be more like a discussion than a research review, since most of the papers we polled are reviews themselves. So um, I guess I should announce the topic, which is so close to everybody's heart right now, and that's calories in versus calories out. Is a calorie really a calorie? I don't know how many times we can have this discussion or how many times we need to beat this dead horse, but we figured we might as well beat on it for about an hour. Anybody have any commentary before we start? I think that um, when I look at what I see online and what I see in some of these journal articles, that a lot of it has to do with semantics, and then some of it has to do with the science of how you look at that, and then the mixture of taking the semantics and the science and then morphing it into whatever side you want to take it into. I would definitely agree with that. Uh, I think, so for this conversation, we're going to be very clear on what what we're going to say. So the first point of, I guess, the the first point to address is what do we mean when we say it's a calorie, a calorie, or calories in equals calories out? And really, that discussion isn't about, well, of course a calorie is a calorie, it's a measure of heat. Uh, really, what it is, is what we're asking, the real question is, are two diets of that have the exact same calorie content, so they're isocaloric, but they have radically different macronutrient compositions, so... For example, a diet very high in carbohydrates, say 60% carbohydrates, versus a diet very low in carbohydrates, say less than 5% of calories. Given those two diets, even though they are isocaloric, can they produce different type, different weight loss in an individual? And then I think even more importantly, different types of weight loss in an individual. So for example, it's very easy to say, well, yeah, somebody lost weight and it could be water weight, could be muscle, could be fat. Uh, what we specifically want to look at as we look more in detail in this conversation is not only the weight loss, but the type of weight loss. So uh, now that we've got that all in perspective, we'll start with the article that pretty much, I guess, recently Brad Schoenfeld and of course, Alan Aragon started praising as, you know, more proof, you know, actual proof that low-carb diets have no advantage, either health-wise or metabolically or for weight loss or any of that. And who, who wants to introduce that paper? Uh, I can do that. So this was published in PLOS One. I assume that's the one you're talking about, Kiefer? Yep. Uh, the title of the journal article was Low Carbohydrate Versus Isoenergetic Balanced Diets for Reducing Weight and Cardiovascular Risk. And this was a systemic systemic review and meta-analysis. So it actually wasn't a trial per se, but a meta-analysis, which is my first kind of irritation. 
um, when we look at some of these things. <laughs> right. When it's used as proof. <laughs> so uh, they looked at some popular weight loss diets and some studies that they looked at and then basically uh, looked at the weight loss in the short-term aspect of these diets, um, whether they were in the low-carbohydrate or the balanced perspective. And basically, they, they essentially said there's no real difference. And I think one of the things that really has kind of irritated me right off the bat was when you look at the macronutrient profiles of these trials, um, I would say only one of them was really low-carbohydrate. Uh, a majority of them were somewhere in the 30 to 40% range. And even in the one study that was 4%, um, there was a second subgroup that wasn't necessarily that low either. So, and, and that was the limb trial that was in that study. And I actually, I hadn't had time to pull a limb article, but I did go back to the abstract. And it looked like that, that, that group that was low carbohydrate actually got weight loss and they did pretty well compared to the other two groups, but. Well, if you actually, I, I actually did read that study. Okay. So for the first three months, their adherence was was decently was pretty decent, where they were hitting about twelve point four percent carbohydrate of total calories. But after that three month period, uh, they went just under forty. They creeped up to just under forty percent of of calories from carbohydrate. So adherence went to garbage <laughs> in that study as well. But yes, that was the only study out of the 19 that was true that could truly be classified as low carbohydrate but even that one uh, after three months it, it basically turned into uh, a higher carbohydrate diet yeah so you know uh alex actually made a really good point about the title uh earlier today before we started the podcast you want to rehash that yeah the, the title is basically biased and it already sets up the tone of the paper i mean you're implying that um, the, the word balance, you're basically implying that a low carbohydrate diet is inferior and that or somehow unbalanced. Yeah. I mean, what is, what is, what does it really mean by balanced? Are you, are you saying that all macronutrients are evenly balanced? If that was the case, then we'd be talking about 33.33% carbohydrate, protein, and fat. I mean, that's, that statement really doesn't really make any sense to me. So I mean, right there, but it sets the tone of the paper. Yeah. But it sounds positive when you, it, it, like it, like right. you said, yeah, it puts the positive emphasis on a, a diet rich in carbohydrates. Right, and it makes low carbohydrate look inferior. Right. So, you know, I think that's a good point. And we need to clarify some terms since scientists apparently, or at least I, I won't necessarily say these people were scientists. Um, but since this community is having a really hard time with low carb uh, they use their definition based off of essentially the USDA guidelines that, you know, a, a balanced diet is between 45% of your calories and 60% of your calories from carbohydrates. Okay, so the inclusion criteria in this meta-analysis for a low-carbohydrate diet was any diet less than 45% of your calories from carbohydrates. So in other words, it's still a very high carbohydrate diet for those who are familiar with the science and the background that goes on in this. So when we, that's one reason I coined the term ultra low carbohydrate, because when I looked at this research over 10 years ago now, I, it was very clear. If you looked up low carbohydrate, you got very confusing study results. And when you looked at all of them, they were all over the map. And that's exactly what this meta-analysis shows. What it's a really good demonstration of is that we have to clearly define low-carbohydrate for what it is or else 
you can't interpret the results sensibly. You get basically a, a null answer, which is what this meta-analysis shows. I think the other thing I would say that is if you have any type of glycemic control issue, so if you're impaired glucose tolerant, pre-diabetic or diabetic, a small amount of moderation probably is not going to get you where you need to be. Right. So, so basically, you know, when we talk about, that's why we're pretty careful to talk about ultra low carbohydrate diets. And that's where we're talking about a very limited amount of calories come from carbohydrates for most of the week. Um, so carbonite barely squeaks into that category. Uh, during the week, it is ultra low carb, but you do get a carb load once a week. Uh, other ketogenic diets like Atkins in induction phase, that is definitely an ultra low carb diet. Um, and we'll, we'll reserve ketogenic uh, for very specific types of diet we, that we talk about. But, you know, we, we need to at this level so that these things can stop being lauded as proof um, by those who apparently cannot understand or interpret the data, um, we need a common vernacular. And so low carbohydrate has really become a completely senseless term. It, it, it has no meaning anymore. It's kind of like paleo. Right. Yeah, it could, exactly. It could mean anything. But I think in terms of some researchers with an agenda, they actually like that vagueness. Oh, exactly. In, in this case, particularly. Well, you know, that's why we like, you know, everybody thinks healthy is a very well-defined term. Like they know what it means to be healthy. Uh, you know, everybody knows what healthy is. It means my blood markers are X, Y, and Z. But to be honest, healthy is kind of lost meaning. We don't really know what healthy means anymore because the majority of things that we're told to do to make us healthy make us sick. And any diet that actually makes us healthy but doesn't go with USDA guidelines they just call it a fad. So really the only thing that defines a healthy diet or a fad diet is that they're not the other. So, you know, you, you've defined them in reference to each other. It has nothing to do with longevity. It has nothing to do with performance. It has nothing to do with uh, disease prevention. It's really just the government says their recommendation is healthy. Therefore, everything else is a fad. So, you know, it's the vagueness of those terms as well that have a positive and negative connotation, but the fact that they're meaningless is really powerful to the people who want to keep control. And I, you know, I think that's, that's basically what goes on with a low, low carbohydrate research and saying, oh, well, you know, nobody's ever shown me research on low carbohydrate diets that's convinced me that they're any good. It's like, well, yeah, you only look at meta-analysis like these. Uh, Brad Schoenfeld basically made that comment and he was making it in reference to this study that was his proof that low carb diets are horrible. Well, I mean, already when we look at the carbohydrate percentages, this, this <clears throat> meta-analysis is basically null and void. Another thing that kind of, I guess, kind of disturbed me is they only looked at weight loss. They didn't look at actual lean body mass. Right. Composition. I mean, which is, we, I, we can always make the argument is probably more important. Oh, well, we can definitely make that argument. Um, so let's go back to the whole origin of this calories in calories out, um, issue. A actually it's, it's a very old issue. It goes back to Atwater when he was studying the caloric content of food and putting people in, um, calorimeters, like one of, you know, the, one of the largest efforts to try to quantify human metabolism ever done. He had more than 10,000 subjects. 
scattered across the United States, all kinds of different lifestyles. Uh, interestingly, what is lost in those notes is that despite different lifestyles, there was a pretty close average to the caloric expenditure of everybody. But really, he was only trying to do this. He was only trying to find some you know, way to categorize the diet so that he could come up with a very cheap plant-based diet for uh, the low socioeconomic class of the time Uh, because, you know, they couldn't afford to have their own farm. They couldn't have a cow. They couldn't have chickens. You know, they, they couldn't afford to go buy meat. And so they were very limited in what they could afford and they could afford plant material because it was dirt cheap plant Plant food back then, like Americans didn't eat it. This was at the turn of the century from uh, late 1800s into early 1900s. Uh, you know, it was considered the poor person's diet. And so what Atwater was trying to do was to quantify this calor- idea of calories so that he could then construct a diet based on plants that would mimic what we knew, what the animal-based diet in some way. And the best way he knew to do it with the tools and technology he had at the time was that they were calorically equal diets. And he found, you know, he found combinations that worked that people could appear to be at least healthy over a short period of time on these plant-based diets. So, you know, he, he did all this work really just to be able to help to feed the poor in a healthy way. He did not intend for this to be... um I, I would say from his research notes, I mean, he very clearly did not think of this as the end-all be-all of nutrition science that it's become. You know, cal- what's the calorie load? What's the calorie count? Um, he even, in his papers, makes makes reference to very, you know, there could be a very large difference between the physical value of the energy in food, which is the calories that we know, the 494, and the biological value of calories from food. And what that means is, or physiological value is what he called it. So the physical value is going to be pretty consistent. You burn it, you get the same answer every time. The physiological value, what the body does with the food could be very, very different. And he was very clear in noting that for some reason that's been lost over the last hundred years that he even made that distinction. And I think that that might take us into that you know, second article that we looked at is, is a calorie a calorie, the Buckholz article. Yes. Uh, and, you know, they talk about the specific and the general terms of, I think, what Atwar was looking at in terms of how we, you know, how we, how, how we can potentially look at these at a more uh, macro, macro aspect versus more specific. I believe, if I remember that, that article correctly. Yes. Uh, that, that article is really important uh, for a second reason, not because of its conclusions. What's interesting about, as you go through the paper, they pretty much say, well, in, ver- in ultra-low-carb diets, we do see some sort of advantage, but it, it must not be real. Therefore, our conclusion is that there's no difference between diets. Um, it, it was a very odd position piece. Well, I thought they kind of... Um, they. Um they negated it by saying that the differences in that in, in those macronutrients are very so small that it couldn't account for the, the changes. Yeah, they they basically they started with the premise a calorie has to be a calorie. So in other words, the two isogenic isoenergetic diets had to be the same. 
So when they presented evidence that negated their claim or was a counterexample, they just said, well, you know, I'm sure it still follows that principle. We just don't know why. We can look at some simple chemistry. For for example, I ran a little bit of math. So so if we're going more towards a fat-based diet, what we actually see when we do reduce carbohydrates to an, sufficient levels, we get about a 20% um, loss in energy to convert fat into ketones. Right, because the, the body goes into uh, essentially what we would call as nutritional ketosis, where it's trying to make up for the low glucose levels by introducing ketones, which are, you know, a high-impact a readily combustible energy source that's very important for brain chemistry in the absence of carbohydrates. So essentially, yeah, we're increasing energy expenditure and also um, muscular efficiency as well, which is really cool. Well, in the heart and the diaphragm. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's kind of, so what we have here are some very interesting uh, situations and uh, you know, because now we've gotten greater efficiency in the heart and the diaphragm. So two muscles that are constantly active, but to get that higher efficiency, we had to expend more energy farther up the chain. So it is possible in that situation, there, there could be a balancing effect that would mask the difference in these diets. Uh, another place that we get energy expenditure is through gluconeogenesis. That is a very wasteful process and very costly. I don't, I don't have the numbers of conversion off the top of my head. That's covered in another paper uh, yeah. by Fine and Fine. Yeah, Finding. I'm trying to remember. It was like a, they talked about the loss of ATP through yeah. the production of glu- through gluconeogenesis. Right. So all these, you know, that's the thing to keep in mind. When we're converting one nutrient to another type of nutrient, that always takes energy, and that takes ATP. That ATP has to come from somewhere, and it comes from the food we ingest. So we're using more of the food we ingest in our energy stores to convert different macronutrients to things that have been lost in the diet. So, uh, you know, that that's very clear. Fine and Feynman in their paper actually went through the calculation and showed if you take carbohydrates out of the diet, you actually, through gluconeogenic processes and ketone production, you'll lose about 10% of the usable calories. I'm correct. They came up with a number of about for a 2000 calorie diet of about 200 calories that would be lost to produce the necessary glucose that your body needs and the ketone production to account for both. So that's about 10%, which is pretty significant. That's a number that Buchholz and Scholler, is that there? I think Scholler. Yeah. Scholler and Buchholz and Scholler said, well, that's not significant. You know, 10, 10% is not significant even though 200 calories is exactly what's recommended by the U.S. government that you should cut per day to lose weight. Uh, so what we have is a very clear, I mean, you can go through, you can do the mathematics, and you sh- can show that at least during a transition period from a, a high-carb diet to a low-carb diet, we would absolutely expect that the low-carb diet would produce and we'll just stick with weight loss in this case, would produce weight loss because of this added inefficiency of macronutrient conversion. You know, it's very clear. This is, this is an expectation if we look just at the numbers, if we look at the thermodynamics, which covers the second law of thermodynamics in this case, we would absolutely expect that one of the diets, one of these two diets would be more wasteful. In other words, there's less usable energy. And 
So we would look for it. We would look for evidence that that's true. And I, I believe, and I don't even believe we have some very well-controlled studies where they control the amount of calories, they control the amount of activity. And we do see that a diet very, very, very low in carbohydrates, so an ultra low carb diet will produce more weight loss in a shorter amount of time, in the same amount of time as an isocaloric carbohydrate diet. I mean, the, the studies are listed in Feynman's paper. They're listed in another paper uh, that we'll put under this article. You know, we have very well-controlled studies at this point, which, you know, it, it backs up our, our assumption of, or not our assumption, it backs up the calculations we can do and matches with our observations. So we, we kind of went backwards in this case. Instead of observing and explaining, we... We could explain and then look for evidence to support it. And we have evidence to support that. Another note I think we want to make is that lack of control in a lot of nutritional studies. Um, basically, it's people for reporting um, their nutritional intake or their caloric intake is notoriously skewed. Most people uh, under-report, particularly obese and yeah. overweight people, which the meta-analysis that we went over initially um, was I think primarily most of those studies were in overweight and obese people. So you have to take that into account as well. That lack of control uh, is huge and will skew the results. They'll also drift back toward their original kind of macronutrient profile to a certain degree as well over time, as you alluded to in that one study where, in a limb study, where they ended up basically eating a 40% diet by that, 40% carbohydrate diet by the end of the study. So you'll see that over and over again in a lot of these studies where or patients are in the in the wild, so to speak, that they uh, would actually drift toward a higher, you know, a change in their macronutrient profile from what the original study was intended to be. Yeah, and that's, I think, one problem with that meta-analysis is that they didn't really talk too much about adherence, which is a huge factor, huge factor. Right, that's why we... Ha- <clears throat> that's why we have to rely on very well-controlled randomized studies if we're going to look at this situation and address it. What's funny is, you know, when the most popular internet trolls out there go out and, you know, attack this as a calorie-calorie, do low-carbohydrate diets have an advantage? They just completely ignore the studies that are well-controlled, ultra-low-carbohydrate diet. They just kind of wave their hand and say, well, that there just must be a mistake there. That's the antithesis of science. That is the absolute antithesis the only thing we have in science that's of any value whatsoever is the data of the world around us. I mean, you know, a theory is just a theory unless it matches up with the data, you know, or well, a hypothesis is just a hypothesis until it matches up with the data. And we continually look for more and more data in different situations to see how well our theory matches up. You can't just throw data away and say, well, there must be some mistake. You know, we have really good reasons for thermodynamic reasons to believe one of these diets should produce more weight loss. And we have examples of that. So, therefore, we need to throw away something that was an unproven assumption. And that unproven assumption is that a calorie is a calorie. That's never been proven. You know, it's, it's been looked at in very poor ways but it's never been proven. So we, we need to step back for a second and think, okay, what is the one thing we don't have proof of that we just assume must be true? 
And that's why I really wanted to bring up this is a calorie a calorie article from 2004, because this is the first time that somebody put in, you know, clearly in writing that they were equating this idea of isocaloric diets having the exact same effect in the body with the first law of thermodynamics, which is essentially energy can be transformed into one type or another, but it can never be created or destroyed. They took that to be absolute proof that the two diets of the same caloric load would produce the exact same results in the two different populations. They're, the first law of thermodynamics does not say that. It has absolutely no reference to what happens inside that system. It doesn't say how the body's going to use that energy. It doesn't say, is that energy going to be used to convert one type of nutrient to another type of nutrient? It doesn't say that the body absolutely has to absorb all those calories that you ingested. I guarantee if you give somebody a 10,000 calorie diet that's mostly olive oil, they're not going to get fat. Because their body's not going to absorb a lot of that 10,000 calories. The first law of thermodynamics says absolutely nothing useful about the human body other than if you collect all the heat it generates, if you know the exact composition of all the chemical bonds in the body at the end of the study, if you measure all the poop, all the urine, all the sweat that comes out of the body, and you look at all the hair growth and put all this together that exactly the amount of energy that came out of the environment, mostly in the case of food and the air that we breathe, is going to equal the sum at the end. That's it. That's all it says. It doesn't say anything interesting or useful, which, you know, it, and it's partly because it does not address the most important part of thermodynamics, which is also the most complex part, uh, which is the second law. And that's what tells us all the interesting stuff that goes on inside the body and it could go on inside the body uh, so it gives us the tools to say okay well this type of macronutrient causes this type of reaction in the body and we can actually go through and say okay well once this reaction occurs what is thermodynamically the most likely process that's going to take place and we can look at all those and we actually have answers for a lot of that we know if you introduce insulin into the system, that you create a favorable environment, and this is a consequence of thermodynamics, the second law, you create a, f uh, a favorable environment for fat cells to accumulate uh, extra tissue internally. So they can absorb fatty acids, they're more likely to absorb glucose, and then they're more likely to esterify that combination into triglycerides for storage. Like, we know this. In the liver... We know absolutely which pathways require insulin to become likely enough to occur. And those pathways are all lipogenic. If you take insulin out, those pathways are no longer likely to occur, which means everything gets shuttled actually into glucose gets dumped back out. Uh, we get more thermogenesis. We get actually triglyceride breakdown. And we also get things like amino acids and fats shuttled into ketone production. We know these facts. These are facts. These aren't question marks. We can do calculations. This stuff's been studied in detail. But for some reason, people just want to stick with that first law and say, no, 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 that nullifies everything else that you ever want to talk about. The first law is the only thing that holds. I mean, 
Uh, in a Facebook thread, Alan Aragon, I mean, that's his backup every time. He's like, oh, a calorie is a calorie. Oh, you don't believe in a calorie is a calorie? Oh, you don't believe in energy conservation? That's all he continues to say. And he's just kind of hoping that his audience is ignorant enough to think that that sounds smart. I just want to clarify, you're not suggesting we should have a t- diet of 10,000 calories of olive oil. No, I want to no, no, no. make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> Although we did, we did have that on the forums, if you remember. I do. <laughs> yeah. And the, the guy was amazed because, you know, he, when he put his diet out there, you know, we're adding up, he's got 10,000 calories total of which I think was like 6,000 was coming from oils basically. And he's like, you know, I just don't get it. I'm not losing any weight. He'd been weight stable for a month at that caloric load. Now, does that mean that his body was burning off 10,000 calories every day? Most likely not. This guy did not sound like he was a triathlete training for Ironmans every day. It, clearly, there needs to be another explanation, which is pretty simple. You know, his body just didn't absorb it. And the, the first law of thermodynamics doesn't tell us anything about that. It, it says nothing about absorption. So basically, and the second law would say, okay, you oversaturated the system with this type of nutrient. We can't get transport. There's not enough, you know, whatever metabolites in high enough concentration to be able to process it at the right rate. Therefore, it most likely came out the other end. And, and I think another good point is if you're talking strictly about a calorie as a calorie, then please explain some um, un, the, un, the process of uncoupling, you know, the uncoupling proteins in the electron transport chain, which could be a very wasteful mm-hmm. process. So I mean, you're looking at very basic physiological cellular mechanisms people are just totally dismissing. You know, I would think that none of us would disagree in, ter- in terms of saying that in order to lose weight or if you want to say, if you want to be more specific about losing body fat, that there has to be some type of energy deficit um, is quantifying that deficit. And I was listening to Dr. Feynman's uh, podcast that we did. I think it was one of the first ones we did. Yeah. And one of the things that, that kind of just struck me was he mentioned that a lot of these processes, and let's take the, the, the fat cell, um, there, are, there are rate steps in these um, reactions that are limited by enzymes. And these enzymes obviously can be upregulated or downregulated. And certainly, depending on the diet that you're eating, it can change the rate of these types of reactions. And I think that's all we're trying to say. And we're not trying to deny that necessarily the unit energy is not a unit energy, but that unit energy can have different physiologic effects on these, on these production of enzymes or the downregulation, downregulation or upregulation of the enzymes, which then can produce different effects at the end of the equation, so to speak. And I think when we talked about it earlier, we talked about how some diets produce greater fat loss and some don't. And I think that's really important to keep in mind of. Yeah, it's, you know, we definitely were not, and I'm definitely not of the opinion that calories don't matter at all. That there's, you know, unfortunately it's been tied heavily with the title of the calorie myth. Um, You know, I don't think there's a myth there. There's definitely some at a 10,000 foot view it's very clear if we want to produce, if we, if our goal is to produce weight loss, which you have to understand is a very non-specific target. We're just trying to lose weight. That could be water. That could be fat. That could be muscle. That can be bone. Oftentimes when you go on a very low carbohydrate based diet, you lose a lot of bone, uh, which contributes to weight loss. That that's not what people want. Um, but that's a very large parameter that covers a lot of specifics. So if your real target is to just lose weight, 
then clearly you need to create a deficit in what's coming into the system. And the idea here that different diets of different macronutrients introduces different ways to get that deficit. So if you want to stay on a high carbohydrate diet, a way to get that deficit is to keep cutting calories. If you want to go on a ultra low carbohydrate diet, instantly making that shift, even if you're eating the same number of calories, has given you a calorie deficit because of the way the body now has to activate other processes to make up for the fact that you're not eating carbohydrates. There's a correction factor, so to speak. Uh, so, you know, that's so we've still introduced a calorie deficit. We've just done it in a totally different way. And that's just like if you want to try to introduce a calorie deficit over the short term, I'm going to be very specific, you could increase exercise or activity a lot. And that would introduce a short term calorie deficit that's been shown to also contribute to any dietary deficits that you might be creating. So there's various ways to get this energy deficit. The question is like, which path are you going to choose? And if you can choose a diet that instantly gives you a 10% deficit over what you were doing, then you're just that much farther ahead in the game. I would, you know, and again, it's a matter of, if you look at the psychology of people trying to lose weight, why wouldn't you take that 10% without doing a right. whole lot other than changing something that you put, you put in your mouth? Right. Well, and what's funny is that I don't think they realize their argument, and that's why they have to ignore so much of this ultra-low-carb data because if they are really set on a calorie is a calorie, nothing else matters, then that means they don't actually care about the macronutrient makeup of the diet, which means if we look at the best available research on low, ultra-low-carb diets versus other types of diets, even Dean Ornish, we can get even without weight loss, so forcing them to stay at the same body weight throughout the intervention, just making that switch to taking carbs out of the diet increases the health of all their all the parameters we look at right now to judge health. So in other words, you know, a, a low-carb diet can only produce health if you lose weight. If you just shift macronutrient content, you can immediately get health without worrying about weight loss. I mean, so if these people really just believe that a calorie is a calorie, nothing else matters, then they are actually arguing that people should go ultra low carbohydrate. They just, they're not, I'm just going to say savvy enough to make that connection and they're trying to hide it as much as possible because really their only agenda, they don't give a shit about the science, they don't give a shit about health. Their only agenda is to support the diet that they've been preaching for the last 10 years because they've been making fun of everything else. And also a diet that we're talking about, low carbohydrate, that's a lot easier to adhere to for most people because it's so, you know, a lot more satiating than a high carbohydrate diet, which induces a lot of hunger for people. If you really want to see weight loss, you have to be consistent over the long term. So adherence is extremely important. Yeah, and it's interesting. I believe Dr. Feynman did a review of adherence to different diet types. And the diet that had the best adherence for the longest period of time was the ultra low carb diet. It was not the low-fat diet. It was not a Dean Ornish diet. It was definitely not the zone. The zone has the worst adherence of any diet. It was really? ultra low. Yeah, the zone. I, that's surprising. Pe people cannot do the zone for very long. That's why, like, I think that's why that audience is just made up of such zealots because they're a pr very particular personality type that will stick to it. But the zone has the worst or the highest attrition rate of any diet. 
that they look at in interventions. Yeah, I, I think I remember a, a cookie analogy that Dr. Feynman had talked about <clears throat> on our podcast. I think about if you give somebody who's doing a regular balanced carbohydrate-based diet and you have a patient who's got a low-carbohydrate diet, that if you put a bowl of cookies in front of them, that the the impulse to refuse to eat the cookie is easier on the low-carb diet mm-hmm. um, versus a person eating the higher-carb diet. That you know, The higher-carb diet patient would eat the cookie and then it would have the whole bowl. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, also what I think is interesting in these arguments is I bet if you take some of the most vocal adherence to a calorie is a calorie, insulin, the insulin hypothesis is dead, uh, which is stupid. I, I've seen that reference that somebody disproved the insulin hypothesis and it was a really crappy blog post. I was like, um, I'm not sure how somebody's blog post is proof of anything. Um, but anyway, they're like, the insulin hypothesis is dead. You know, this person disproved it, like blah, blah, blah. If you take any of those individuals, and we've got two really good examples uh, of, of hormones that affect different transitions in the body of tissue. So nobody would argue that if you introduce testosterone to a male who has low testosterone levels and don't change their diet, that they will get an accretion of muscle mass and a decrease in fat mass. We have very, very good studies published in an actually a reputable journal the New England Journal of Medicine that has shown this conclusively that if you introduce testosterone, I think they just did like uh, like 200 milligrams a month, not even that much. Yeah, I don't think it was a big dose. Yeah, it was not a big dose. They did not do anything with their diet. There was a change in body composition of an accretion of muscle mass and, a, and bone mass and a decrease in body fat. Nobody, everybody in the sports and fitness industry the health industry might be a little different, but everybody in that industry, which is where all the naysayers come from, would say, well, yes, obviously testosterone changes things so that your body shuttles more nutrients to growing muscle mass and less to fat. Okay, cortisol is another great example. If you bring up cortisol and you look at all these studies where people are injected with cortisol for long periods of time, either because of pain control or some other issue, we have very good studies that show that uh, administering cortisol or cortisol-like substances like dexamethasone destroys muscle tissue and bone tissue. We've, they, would, they would not argue that point and say, well, of course, you introduce the hormone cortisol, it breaks down a lot of tissue in the body, and this is even without dietary changes. Keeping the diet the same, we see actually a reversal of what we would see with testosterone. We see a decrease in muscle mass a decrease in bone mass, and an increase in fat mass. So, and, and I guarantee they would completely agree with all of these statements. Now, the minute you say, okay, is there a hormone that could increase body fat faster if it's introduced to the body? And we actually have a very good candidate for that, which is insulin. Um, we even have, which is a recognized medical condition, if somebody, if a type 1 diabetic injects their insulin in the same site over years without rotating, they get fat cell accumulation at the site of injection because, and this is a generally accepted medical uh, analysis, because the insulin causes the growth and accumulation of fat locally. So now when you put all this together and say, okay, well, we've got a good candidate that having insulin levels high on a regular basis all day, every day, should change the environment 
to make you gain body fat. Instantly, every, oh, that's the dumbest thing ever. How could a hormone do something like that? It's, it's like this total, you know, they'll reject everything else. They won't make any other correlations. They act like it's the dumbest idea in the world that a hormone in the body could cause you to get fat. They're like, oh, that's just stupid. It's obviously because you ate too much. Well, this, this conversation <laughs> might dovetail into the one article you had pushed out, the energy balance or fat balance. Uh, that was uh, the uh, Swinburne and Ravusin article. I don't know if you recall that one. They looked at um, taking macronutrients isolate in an isolated manner and trying to determine you know, the rate of metabolism and where it ends mm-hmm. up in. And, and they have a, a table here. I think it is on, they talked about de novo lipogenesis. They looked at alcohol, fat, protein, and carbohydrate, mm-hmm. and then looking at the comparison of macronutrient stores and balance in, in a male, um, looking at the um, sort of gas tank of where it can be stored, mm-hmm. is it expandable, um, what's the daily variability in that size, and um, looking at the balance of oxidation. And so I found that one kind of interesting to a certain degree. Um, one of the things they uh, kind of alluded to was that the fact that um, and it's an interesting concept I think I internalized maybe about how we have such limited glycogen stores, but our, you know, our fat mm-hmm. tank is immense. It's, ever it's unlimited. Yeah, pretty it's much. Unlimited, yeah. Um, and then, and then they talk about, um, basically how the variability of that can play a factor in terms of intake and oxidation. So, uh, I, I just lost my train of thoughts. So I'm not sure where I was going with this, but. <laughs> well, you said what I was saying dovetails into that. Uh, the, oh, it's gone. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, it'll come back to me. Yeah, it, <coughs> oh, it definitely changes, you know, the type of macronutrient you in- introduce changes the hormonal environment in the body. I mean, that's the end of the story. We know that for a fact. All right. It came back to me. So I, I think that maybe part of this, um, insulin hypothesis, uh, naysayer, I think maybe the concept of this looking at it at a acute standpoint, you, you eat a meal high in carbohydrates um, and maybe there's some type of uh, morphine is saying, okay, that carbohydrate then turns into fat and then the high insulin causes that fat to be stored. And I don't think that's what anybody's saying. Mm. We're, we're saying that it's the, it's the chronicity of that and the chronicity of the um, potential excess of energy available in the body that then promotes the storage of fat. Right. And, and, you know, another, another way, and this is a good point that you brought that up, that they cloud, um, and, and try to refute the insulin hypothesis, so to speak. I don't like that name, the insulin hypothesis, but anyway, the way they try to refute that is say, well, if you look at oxidation rates, you know, if you introduce more carbs, then you get more carbs oxidated and it all balances out. We're not just looking at oxidation rates. Oxidation rates do not correlate and will not necessarily correlate with mobilization rates of different energy stores in the body. Again, we have to address the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us, given the hormonal environment, what stores of energy are more likely in the body to be used or to be accumulated. I mean, it's really that simple, and that's why the first law of thermodynamics is kind of a canard. We, it's being used to try to sound scientific and uh, uh, definitive when in fact it really says nothing interesting. I mean, the earth, 
it, the Earth is a closed thermodynamic system, which makes it really easy to analyze and say, yep, all the energy that was on the Earth and all the energy that comes in from the sun is going to be equal every day at the end of the day. But that doesn't tell us anything about the number of humans compared to the number of ants on the planet. It doesn't tell us anything about uh, an increase in thermal thermal load of the atmosphere because of, of whatever reason. It doesn't tell us about chilling effects on the planet and why those are happening. You know, it doesn't tell us anything intelligent about what's going on inside the body or in, inside the earth. It's the exact same thing. The first law of thermodynamics tells us absolutely nothing intelligent about what's happening inside the body. And we need to look at the second law of thermodynamics for that. It's very, very important. And unfortunately, very, very difficult. I would say only in the last 10 years have we developed tools to be able to fully explore the ramifications of the second law of thermodynamics at the cellular level or at tissue disposition um, locations. You know, it's very, very complex and it's very hard to understand and again, I think that's why it's glossed over. It's not something that's been studied by most of these nutritional experts or exercise experts who are making comments on diet. I think the other thing that I always see when it always comes back to this insulin hypothesis to kind of negate, so to speak, the theory, quote unquote, mm-hmm. is I've seen a reference to articles showing different types of food products and then their insulogenic properties and so one of the arguments, I think part of this comes from like plant-based uh, folks, mm-hmm. is that, for example, beef protein tends to have one of the highest insulinogenic factors. And, and so I, I see this also as a kind of a, a way of muddying the water, so to speak. Uh, again, because it, it, like you say, the second law of thermodynamics, is it, the first law doesn't tell us anything about the second law. And there right. can be many, many other issues going on in the background. And again, it's not one specific meal. It's the chronicity of the exposure. Right. Exactly. And, you know, when you when you take certain nutrients out of the body. So if this theory holds, if the theory that thermodynamics and the the type of fuel available is going to affect different tissue stores. So, for example, if you're eating a carbohydrate diet that has high carbs and you've got sufficient fat in that prescription, then we've got a great formula that the body's going to burn what carbs it can. It's going to store what carbs it can. And then it's also going to store the fat because that's a less preferred fuel when you're eating glucose. So you, and to store fat, you need glycerol backbones for a triglyceride, which can very easily be taken from glucose. So now you've provided all the raw material that's perfect to store fat for body fat. You've provided glucose to make the glycerol backbone, which fat cells suck up, and you've provided fat to be stored with the glycerol as triglycerides. So you provided all everything necessary. The body doesn't have to do much work to then store that. So if this is true, we would also expect that a diet that has almost no fat whatsoever should actually produce some fat loss, some decent fat loss, because you're no longer supplying fat to the body. It's got to get it from somewhere. At that point, it should mobilize it from body fat stores. And we do actually have evidence of that, but nobody refutes, nobody interprets that evidence correctly they just interpret it as well obviously we need to eat high carbs no no no. it's the absence of an essential nutrient that's making those people drop body fat because we need fat to live you're not eating it so the body's got to get it from somewhere that's why i think it's something 
pretty close to 30% of strict vegetarians and vegans are underweight. And it's, you know, because their body has to constantly be stripping them of fat in order to be, you know, try to remain healthy. And I think, you know, and, and to come back from at least my perspective and when I look at cardiovascular disease, that fat's going to potentially come from your artery. I mean, it's going to be <laughs> right. efflux out of there as well. Yeah. So you'll see, you'll see case reports and anecdotal reports from um, Caldwell Essestine, who is one of the big um, Cleveland Clinic uh, proponents of a plant-based diet, and he'll show you angiogra- angiographies uh, of patients pre and post you know, dietary implementation. You'll see these huge changes in their, in their arterial angiograms. And, you know, I've always come back to say, well, of course you will, because you've made a significant change in your diet. I mean, and and you've effluxed everything away. Right. But unfortunately, if you look at other biomarkers that do correlate strongly with health, all those go out of whack. I mean, the body gets sick. It's not just about body fat. So this is a really complex issue. And, you know, I think there's just a lot of hand waving and gesturing that, oh, well, first law of thermodynamics, that covers everything. Let's move on. And it allows them to ignore everything like the testosterone, like the admittance that testosterone can change the environment in the body for different tissue accretion, the admittance that cortisol can change the environment in the body. And then, you know, the denial that insulin could change the environment in the body. It's, you know, why are these things, why are they not making consistent arguments across everything that they're saying? Because it's, I think it's just too easy to use the first law as a crutch and just move on. Right, right. But it, it still doesn't keep them consistent across the board. You know, they're, they're still saying inconsistent things. They just make sure they never say them together. You know, <laughs> you know really, I think, you know, that this camp that is so anti-low-carb, you know, one, as far as dietary recommendations, the, the most interesting thing about this camp is they never put out their dietary recommendations. They've got some cursory stuff. It's really basic. It's kind of like follow the USDA, don't eat a lot. But they never say anything definitive. Um, they backtrack all the time. You know, of course, one of the person who's like, well, the, the low-carb hypothesis is just stupid. Nobody should be low-carb. Uh, in one of their research reviews, they're like, oh, well, obviously diabetics should, should be ultra-low-carb. It's, you know, they, they reverse stuff all the time. They just are very careful not to do it when they're trolling the internet, which is basically what they do all day, every day. I think the recommendation is just don't eat too much food is what the recommendation yeah, is. and that's it. And they just want to leave it at that. Um, and that does not cover the basis for a lot of Americans, for a lot of people all over the world. That is not a solution. Now, this doesn't mean that an ultra low carb diet is what everybody would have to go on for perfect health. Um, there's definitely genetic variations. There's insulin sensitivity variations. Um, there's exercise variations that would change that prescription. But, you know, I think we're always going to see that a lower carbohydrate diet, a very, very low carbohydrate diet will always produce the best initial results for everybody. And then what we would have to do from there is tweak to see what is optimal for them. But I guarantee it's always going to be much, much lower carbohydrate load than 45% to 60% of the diet. I would generally agree with that as well. Yeah. I mean, Unless those carbs are all fiber. Like, so if you look at a vegan diet, right. they've got such a high fiber load. It, it is actually low usable carbohydrate. And you could argue that a lot of the calories they do get are fat calories from the fermentation of the fiber in the colon into short chain fatty acids. 
Trust me, the general population is not getting that much fiber. Yeah. No, no, I know. <laughs> right. Well, I was talking about vegans specifically who are trying to live just on, on vegetation alone. Um, and, you know, an, another interesting point, uh, unfortunately, I didn't give you guys these studies, but I know you're familiar with them. Uh, when we, we look at this idea of, so the body, I'm, I'll use some pseudo-technical terms, but not really too much. Basically, the body thermodynamically is very, very complex. It's not a closed system. We exchange material with the environment all the time. We're always breathing. Uh, we're always ingesting food. We're always uh, excreting waste products. We are constantly in flux, which is really important because it gives the body the ability to maintain a homeostasis, which is not equilibrium. Equilibrium is a very, very, very simple process, one that the body is actually never near. The body is always very, very far from equilibrium, but that allows it to then stay in a very comfortable place based on its environment. Uh, and one of the things that I find interesting is when we look at exercise studies and we look at activity studies, uh, when we look at some of the meta-analysis on these, it turns out that over long, the long term, physical activity doesn't necessarily equate with calorie expenditure over time. The more active you are for the longer period of time, your body seems to settle down into this kind of basic uh, that seems to be universal rate of energy usage, which is, we'll just say around 2,000 kilocalories or 2,000 calories. And, and it, it's very interesting and it's made very salient when we look at other populations in the world and we say, okay, the Hadza tribe was studied in, at fairly well, uh, fairly high detail. They were to show these people are walking constantly all day. They're running, they're hunting. They're a very, very active group. Well, when we compared their metabolic needs to uh, a typical American who has an office job and who's overweight, they were almost identical. When you corrected for overall body mass, they're identical. The only thing over time that determines how many calories you need is how much you know body mass you have. Specifically, lean tissue is a better correlate, but body mass overall determines your metabolism. That's it. So a very obese person actually burns a lot more energy than somebody who's lean. That's a myth that they have a slow metabolism. They don't. It's sped up. Um, and so what happens over time, if you exercise too much or you exercise a lot, the body just becomes more and more efficient. And it can do that because it's this dynamic system that's not forced to be in equilibrium. It can change all kinds of things internally. Uh, Alex mentioned earlier the uncoupling proteins. Uh, those are basically things that get in the way in the mitochondria chain, the electron transport chain, and throws off energy as heat. So it's not usable energy anymore. We can't store it as calories. We can't use it for muscle for uh, muscular contractions. We can't do anything with it. Uh, it's just thrown away. So the body has all these compensatory mechanisms that it can upregulate, downregulate, and reach this what appears to be almost a universal energy expenditure of around 2,000 calories. So, so even the idea of you need to exercise more, uh, you need to ingest less, it really turns out to, to kind of be total BS. It, it, it just stems from a fundamental misunderstanding of what the human body is and what it's capable of. We just think of it basically as a rock. It's like, oh, well, if you heat up a rock, going to store that heat and then it's going to release that heat and we can measure that and nothing else is going to happen that's that's interesting 
we're not rocks. We have an incredibly complex internal structure. The only time the human body reaches equilibrium is once it's decayed. Well, I think that comes back to, I always hear you say, talking about making the body more inefficient. Yes. That, that is the key. And so it sounds like, and this is something that I've been talking to patients with more recently as well, is that you, know, you need to be doing things differently on a regular basis and, and, right. and, and not doing the repetitive type of things that you normally do. Right. And, you know, since we just talked about this, you know, I would expect and we luckily we have evidence for this. Unfortunately, the um, the high carb advocates use this as proof against low carb diets and that there's any usefulness there. But if you look over the long term, there seems to be this regulating process that occurs that the body then gets back to a point where there doesn't seem to be a metabolic advantage to a very low carbohydrate diet. And actually, I would expect that. I would only expect to see these advantages with everything we know about the body. I would only expect to see these type of metabolic advantages during transition periods from an ultra-low carb period to a high carb period or from a high carb period to an ultra-low carb period. During these dietary transitions are the only times that I would expect to see a consistent advantage of changing macronutrients. I would expect from what we know about the human body and from thermo, the second law of thermodynamics from those arguments that the body would eventually reach a homeostasis pretty close to what it was before and you would lose those metabolic advantages. So I would also expect seeing a metabolic advantage if you went from a very, very high fat diet to a super low fat diet that was high in carbs. And we actually have evidence of that. There's research to show that. Um, so, you know, we have to put all of this into com context and it's very, very important. So essentially when you switch macronutrient ratios, you've, you've put the body in an inefficient state. It's got to upregulate enzymes. It's got to change metabolic pathways. It's got to make up for fuel sources that you're no longer providing that the body might need for certain purposes. All, you know, all kinds of different things happen, but eventually over time, body's going to correct for that. Um, you know, this is one reason I'm a very huge advocate, of course, of my diets and, and they're not just, you know, personal opinions or pets of mine. I, I honestly think that they are the best way to keep the body inefficient for as long of an amount of time as possible instead of letting it get to a point that it can correct itself. And I, I think that's the advantage even paleo people see in the beginning. They, they inadvertently go from this high carb diet. They take out all their grains and everything and they become low carb. So they've set up this very inefficient uh, period. Unfortunately, they start introducing carbs later uh, in different forms, not realizing how that might change the environment and what the long-term implications of that. You know, I'm trying to create programs that you can be on the rest of your life and almost guarantee that, you know, you can stay lean and healthy. And I don't think you pigeonhole yourself by saying this is the only way to do it. You know, as you had already alluded to, uh, different situations call for different circumstances. Yeah. You know, I, I'm my next book I'm going to open with, you know, this is the best research available at the time. Uh, these are very consistent. This is a consistent framework for what I'm trying to create here. But at any moment, these recommendations might change in some way because you know, we learn more and more stuff every day, but you know, I feel at this point, I have a very solid 
underlying framework to my plans that it's, it's going to be pretty consistent in the future, you know, no matter, you know, as we learn more, I think we'll, we'll, what we'll see is more evidence in favor of um, these plans. And if we don't, if we see that something else is better or more optimal, well, of course, I'm going to recommend that, you know, the whole goal is to, you know, accomplish health, longevity, and fat loss or maintenance of body fat. You know, that's my whole goal. So, of course, I'm always going to want to be on the cutting edge of what the research is showing is best for that instead of just sticking with my theory. No matter what, a high-carb diet is the healthiest thing in the world. Everything else has to fit with that. Anything that doesn't fit with that is obviously just stupid. That's not science. Yeah, and I think you have to, uh, have to agree that you always have to have that open mind and not have the blinders on because that's when you get in trouble. Well, yeah, and that's why I go down so many rabbit holes with my diet because a real scientist which is obviously almost does not exist in the fitness industry right now. A real scientist is the most tenacious about trying to disprove or find problems with their own theory. And that's what I've consistently been doing. You know, that's why I've got two different diet plans. I found inconsistencies trying to use carb night while training heavy. And so I found carb backloading. Uh, there's inconsistencies with carb backloading. That's why I have to write an entirely new book. Um, but you know, that's that's my biggest concern is really attacking my own diets um and a lot of time trying to attack them gives me or more evidence as to why they be, might be true but it's also given me some evidence of things i missed and things that i need to correct and make better um that's why i do the podcast it's why I, you know i put information out there new information to, to try to help people stay updated uh essentially correcting the mistakes i made in the original text and in regards to the fitness industry, a blog post is not a publication. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And, and of course, the person who wrote an article saying, well, the, you know, so-and-so's blog post to disprove the insulin hypothesis, their background, they had an MBA. So their ability to assess, you know, these type of discussions, I think, is very, very limited. And uh, they just assumed, you know, because they write about nutrition, they know everything about nutrition, which happens a lot in this industry there's a lot of um you know just magazine editors who decided to write a book because they're like well i edit a magazine therefore i know everything it looks good on the cover yeah you know of course editor of muscle what men's health or whatever brian zizenko his yeah i i obviously don't like him very much i think that's his name brian i know it's zizenko is his last name the ab diet Oh, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, the abs diet. It's got this bright orange cover. <laughs> he says some of the most ridiculous things in that book. And basically his evidence is always, well, I was editor of Men's Health. You know, it's his evidence for everything. Well, of course, trans fats are totally, totally artificial and they don't exist anywhere in nature. And I know because I was the editor of Men's Health. It's like, <laughs> you know, that's just, <laughs> that's not, in my opinion, that's not very good evidence of anything. So we're over the hour. Anybody have any closing comments? We actually covered a lot. If somebody can listen to this podcast and still be the be of the opinion that, oh, you know, only calories matter. The insulin hypothesis is stupid. Hormones have no effect in the body. And uh, we need to eat a high carbohydrate based diet, which, you know, if you believe a calorie is a calorie, there's no reason you should want to eat a high carb diet. You know, that you should just eat anything you want. It's kind of like if it fits your macros, it's just this random, whatever, you know, just throw the shit in there and something good's going to happen. 
Um, but that's clearly not the case, and it's far more complex when you include health into the equation that we didn't even get a chance to discuss, which is my problem with if it fits your macros. Uh, it's a diet that young people are using and that young people get great results from, and they're just not cognizant of the problems that they could be introducing later in life by following uh, such an ad hoc trend. Um, but, you know, they're young. They can rebound. I, I did from at least 80% of the things I did for myself. Uh, there's 20% of stuff I'm just not going to be able to fix that damage. It was pretty intense. So, yeah. Alex, any closing comments? No, I think we uh, we beat the dead horse to a, to a pulp again. <laughs> I know. The dead horse is now in equilibrium because it's decaying. <laughs> you you can you can definitely apply the first law of thermodynamics to the dead horse if it's in a sealed metal box. Airtight, airtight. Yep, at, at, at zero degrees Kelvin. Well, well, that that actually changes things quite a bit. That makes the, that makes the oh, application actually, of the first law like very, very, very. Uh, easy because right. nothing's going to change at that, <laughs> at that temperature. <laughs> uh, so I think that's about it. It's uh, another episode of Body IOFM. Uh, thanks, Alex, for being in studio for this podcast. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. And uh, Rocky, of course. Thanks for driving all the way across town. No problem. And we will talk to everybody later. been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance. <laughs>